0: Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to, to um this morning to hear your word read for us, uh, to hear it explained and unpacked for us, to taste the uh, sacrament that you've given us. And we pray, Father, that... Your spirit would be so present in this moment and in this place that you'd be stirring our affections and, and opening our, our ears and softening our hearts, driving away the fog of our brains, the busyness of our minds, that we might be present here and we might see Jesus Christ in all his beauty and glory and all his love. We pray you do this for your glory and for your name. And may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by thanking Kerry Balzer. I don't think Kerry's here this morning, but I want to thank Kerry Balzer for uh, filling the pulpit while I was away on study leave last week. Uh, he's always faithful to Christ and to the text uh, and his preaching, so I'm confident you benefited uh, from what God had to say through him. So thank you, Carrie. This week, we'll begin another three-week sermon series. And I say another three-week sermon series because if you'll recall, we spent the last three Sundays in September on a series devoted to providing some of the scriptural support for our new mission, vision, and values here at First Presbyterian Church. And if you missed any of those sermons, I would encourage you to to go back and listen to them. The mission, vision, and values are are published on our website now. I think there's a a few physical copies uh, inside, but they're published on our website under the About Us tab uh, at the top of our website. And and all uh, past sermons are also available to you in the sermon archive located under the uh, Gather and Grow tab on our website. And I wanna encourage you to listen to those sermons because for the next three Sundays, we are going to devote our attention to one of the three prongs of our vision statement. Each of the prongs of this vision statement is focused on the cultivation of presence. But one of the prongs is focused on cultivation of uh, of the awareness of God's presence with us. The second is focused on cultivating our presence with one another as a community of saints. And the third is uh, cultivating our presence in the city. And it's this last prong of our vision statement, the cultivation of our presence in the city, that will be the focus of the next three sermons at at First Press. And what you will notice in our vision statement is that we do not provide the how for this statement, how we will go about doing these things, how we will go about cultivating presence in this three-pronged way. And this is an intentional omission because it allows the staff and the session and the members of First Presbyterian Church the flexibility to explore creative ways in which we can fulfill this vision. However, when it comes to cultivating our presence in the city, there is already one how that we have identified and committed ourselves to, and that is by developing stronger relationships with our neighbors, specifically our Hispanic neighbors, of which there are many in Salem Springs. How will we cultivate our presence in the city? Well, one way is through the cultivation of genuine and meaningful relationships with the Hispanic community of Salem Springs. You likely have heard that First Presbyterian Church has joined what is called NWA United. This is a group of churches that in, in Northwest Arkansas who are united in the gospel against racism, for justice and all for the glory of God. And our participation in this effort in Northwest Arkansas is a, is a direct expression of our, of our vision to cultivate our presence in and with the Hispanic community of Siloam Springs. And as we begin to wade into this work, as an expression of our vision, and in conjunction with NWA United, I want to address the apparent redundancy that's listed out in their stated identity. NWA United describes themselves as united in the gospel against racism, for justice, and all for the glory of God. And the apparent redundancy of this stated identity, in case you missed it, is in the need to specify that we are against racism and for justice when we already stated we're united in the gospel. Why is it necessary to call out racism and justice? Doesn't the gospel sufficiently address and resolve those two things? Would it not be enough to say Simply that we're united in the gospel full stop and expect racism to disappear and justice to be established as the gospel spreads more and more and more people become Christians. That would be enough if the gospel which we are uniting around is full in its intended scope and effect, but that has not historically been the case. Historically, the gospel that that evangelicals have preached in the United States has separated the spiritual from the social to the neglect of the social. Evangelicals, a, a category to which we belong, we are, after all, part of the evangelical Presbyterian Church, have emphasized the state of the soul without addressing the social position of the person to whom that soul belongs. In fact, early on in this country, while we were still a British colony, Christians made emphatic assurances that they would not disrupt the social order that had enslaved African men, women, and children in exchange, in exchange for the right to preach the gospel to slaves and thus save their souls. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their absolutely brilliant book entitled Divided by Faith, identify three major ways the clergy at that time sought to reverse the accepted understanding that accepting Christ and being baptized freed a slave not only from sin, but also from slavery. They wanted to reverse that. They wanted to divide the social from the spiritual in order to receive license to preach to the slaves. So Emerson and Smith point out that beginning as early as 1664, And increasingly, during the first quarter of the 18th century, clergymen encouraged several colonial legislatures to declare that slaves remain slaves even when baptized. Secondly, they had Anglican Bishop George Berkeley request a formal statement from Britain's attorney general and solicitor general. In 1729, both replied that baptism did not negate slave status within the British kingdom. And third, clergymen argued that Christian liberty in no way changed temporal bondage. In a widely distributed 1727 letter to American planters, Anglican Bishop Gibson declared that Christianity and the embracing of the gospel does not make the least alteration in civil relations. The gospel, early on in our country, was stripped of its fullness so that it had spiritual implication, but no social implication. And in an effort to set everyone at ease about their gospel ministry, clergymen of the day pushed to have slavery further cemented as an unchangeable reality for the Africans who had been stolen from their homes and forced to labor for nothing in return, except the anemic hope of a partial gospel that was being preached to them that one day things will be different. They were told that Christ's work to make us equals had no bearing on their status in this life. George Whitefield was one of the greatest preachers to ever walk American soil. He was instrumental in the first great awakening in the United States. And Smith and Emerson tell a story to illustrate just how powerful his preaching was. They're so powerful and moving that Benjamin Franklin a man once quoted as saying that a man and his money were soon parted. Benjamin Franklin parted with his money when he listened to George Whitfield and became a self-proclaimed fool when he heard him preach. Franklin is quoted as recounting the story in this way. He said, I perceived that Whitfield intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. But he finished so admirably that I emptied my pockets wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all." Whitfield was a hugely gifted preacher, able to even move Benjamin Franklin. And many credit him with being the founder of American evangelicalism. And yet Emerson and Smith point out that at the same time that Whitfield preached his message of radical equality in Christ, and shared the salvation message with slaves, he was a supporter of slavery. He was convinced that for the heathen African, as he called them, bondage was their best insurance for salvation. What is more, in an open letter, to planters in the colonies, Whitfield urged kinder treatment of slaves, but noted that cruelty can have the positive effect of heightening the sense of their natural misery, thereby increasing receptivity to the Christian message. You hear the perversity of this logic. Not only were the spiritual and the social separate for him, as they were with most clergymen of the day, but Whitfield sought to use the social oppression of slaves as leverage to get them to receive his spiritual message of salvation. Whitfield would oppose the abolition of slavery because he would lose his leverage for the gospel. it makes one wonder what gospel it is that Whitfield was preaching, that he could care for the soul but not for the body. It certainly wasn't the gospel that Jesus preached in the synagogue at Nazareth. The story which was read for you earlier from the gospel of Luke. Jesus having, we're gonna move to this mic. Jesus having just begun his ministry, read from the prophet Isaiah in order to announce his calling and intentions for his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus announced. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There are four things I I want to point out to you about Jesus' statement. The first is the dual nature of the language Jesus chooses. He's been sent to bring good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Jesus intentionally uses flexible language that can have both spiritual and social meanings. He does not choose one over the other. He does not preach a social gospel that puts great effort into social justice without any regard for the salvation of souls. Neither does he preach a gospel that's been characteristic of evangelicals in the United States, a gospel that demonstrates little regard for social conditions so long as the person is saved. The gospel Jesus preaches is a salvation from sin and a salvation from the effects of sin. When Jesus healed the paraplegic man brought to him by his friends who carried him on on a mat, Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. But in order to make the spiritual reality of his forgiveness visible to those present, he also said to the man, take up your mat and go home. The man picked up his mat and and went home and the physical effect of his healing communicated the spiritual reality of his forgiveness. The two complemented each other and pointed to one another and Jesus chooses language that allows both the social and spiritual hope he brings to be communicated simultaneously. And the second thing I I want to point out about Jesus' announcement is that the the poor in Luke 4, the people to whom Jesus brings good news, are neither the spiritually nor economically poor, as is often imagined. Rather, as, as one scholar explains, both of these definitions of the poor are inadequately grounded in ancient Mediterranean culture in the social world of Luke's in that culture, one's status in a community was not so much a function of economic realities, but depended on a number of elements, including education, gender, family, family heritage, nationality, religious purity, vocation, economics, and so on. Thus, lack of subsistence might account for one's designation as poor, But so might other disadvantaged conditions according to normal canons of status honor in the Mediterranean world. And and this is worth pointing out because by naming the poor with this broad social meaning, Jesus was demonstrating his interest not just in a narrow swath of economic poor, in the marginalized people living in his community. He's not satisfied or pleased with the rigid boundary markers that had been developed to privilege some and marginalize others. Instead, he was looking outside the boundaries and wondering about those people. They need some good news. Who is going to preach good news to them? And the third thing to point out about Jesus' announcement is that the, the word release, which shows up when Jesus says that he's come to proclaim release to the captives, This word is best translated as forgiveness, so that Jesus is presented as the Savior who grants forgiveness of sins. But in the Gospel of Luke, forgiveness, as scholars point out, implies restoration to or entry into the community. The mission of release would have important spiritual and social ramifications. A person wasn't forgiven and left in the same social position. A forgiven person was, by virtue of their forgiveness, brought into the community and enjoyed a different social status than before receiving their forgiveness. Spiritual, therefore, had a direct bearing upon the social, which is a direct rebuke, the evangelical tendency to separate the two. But perhaps the most important thing to point out about Jesus' announcement is that this word release, which is repeated twice, in the text is a direct echo of the Jubilee laws that were articulated in Leviticus 25 and read for you earlier as our Old Testament reading. The Jubilee laws were a codified plan for regular and vast social disruption that were designed to maintain equality within a society. It was a law that mandated that what is true of us spiritually, we're all equal in God's sight by virtue of our creation in his image, should be reflected in the social order. The Jubilee Law stated that every 49 years, everything was reset. One scholar explains that in biblical times, a man who incurred a debt that he could not repay could be forced to sell off his land or even his personal freedom by becoming a slave. And when left unchecked, this process led to great social division with a class of rich landowners exploiting a mass of landless serfs. serfs. But in the Jubilee year, the land reverts to its original owner, and the slave is given his freedom. Thus, about once in any man's lifetime, the slate was wiped clean. Everyone had the chance to make a fresh start. The rich had to part with the land and slaves they had acquired in the previous 49 years, while the poor recovered their land in freedom. The Jubilee would have restored some semblance of equality between men, thereby recapturing something of the relationship that existed between them at their creation. If you think about this legislation that God had written into his law, the thought of it is incredible and the design is brilliant the social and structural disruption of this would have been tremendous. In order to make the spiritual and the social realities match, huge structural realities had to be reversed and undone. It was not enough for one person to do this. Everyone was required to abide by the law. And so there was this release of power, the end of oppression, the elimination of inequality. And the next year, the year after the Jubilee, everyone could begin again, and life was allowed to play out the next 49 years. But the knowledge that the Jubilee year was coming was both a check on the insatiable greed and appetite of humanity, and a source of hope for those who found themselves enslaved or without any land to call their own. It's absolutely brilliant. And this is what Jesus is echoing in his announcement of his ministry an announcement in which he shows through various ways that he's interested in both social and spiritual salvation and is interested in not just the economically or spiritually poor, but those who have been disadvantaged by the structures of a society that have pushed them to the margins. Jesus is committed to making the social and spiritual realities match, not just through personal reconciliation, although that is a huge part of it, but through structural disruption. It undoes power dynamics and allows all people to make a fresh start. This is the fullness of the gospel which Jesus proclaimed, in which we must learn to embody. As we observe and address the great economic, power, and educational disparities that exist between the separate races in our country and in our city, God did not give us the vision of Revelation 7, with people from every tribe and and language standing before God as equals in praise of Him, as a vision merely of what will be, but of what should be. He tells us the end while we're living in the middle still, so that we can spend the rest of the time trying to make the middle of the story more closely resemble the end. He gives us a glimpse into heaven so that we can know how we should be acting on earth in order to participate in the answer to our daily prayer that God's kingdom will come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is precisely what we're trying to do as we increase our presence in and with the Hispanic community of Siloam Springs. We want to form genuine and meaningful relationships with them so that we get the opportunity to hear what it's like to live as a marginalized people and to learn ways in which we can partner with them in making social realities match the spiritual reality we preach. If you don't think they're marginalized, according to the 2020 census data, Hispanics make up 22% of the population in Silent Springs. Almost a quarter of the population. And yet our city board with seven seats contains not a single Hispanic. That's not good news for the poor. Using that word, of course, the way Jesus did, to describe those on the edges of a society. That's not even very American. It verges on taxation without representation, and we've wasted perfectly good tea in the past to fix that problem. I could attempt to list out other structural realities in our city that reinforce our social disparities that jump out at me from a distance. Small things and big things. I mean, even the City Recreational Futsal League was advertised in English only. It's obviously a small but not insignificant thing given the love for soccer that is present in the Hispanic community. The best way we will learn how to make our presence felt in this city is to listen to those who are living on the outside and we can work with the energy and conviction that comes from the fullness of the gospel that we have inherited from Jesus. The gospel in all its fullness is against racism and for justice. So how about we be an evangelical church that embodies the gospel in all its fullness? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.